Now, last week, we had some great principles, didn't we, on ministry and, and dealing with people. And the issues that we all face uh, in dealing with human beings. I remember back, you remember all the series Star Trek uh, with William Shatner, when after they were done, they came out with a series of movies. And uh, the first one uh, was, uh, I liked them all, but the first one, there was a term, uh, a term used in it that I'd never forgotten about human beings. And they, they called human beings carbon-14 units. <laughs> and uh, I, I stuck with me. So, you know, somebody asked me, what do I do for a living? And I don't want to scare them off by saying I'm a preacher. I tell them I'm a technician. And they'll say, what do you work on? And I say, I work on carbon-14 units. That always gets their attention. And they say, really? What is that? And I say, that's human beings. I'm, I'm a preacher. Uh, but, you, but now you got them because you're, they're your buddy because you, you know. But, so I never forgot that. But, you know, the ministry is dealing with people. And the need to always have uh, the truth of the Word of God uh, through its principles uh, on your side uh, whether you're doing something for the Lord, growing, or whether you're in the ministry uh, dealing with people. And, you know, principles in the Bible are to be used, not to be deviated from. And, you know, people look at churches and what they do with the Word of God and what we're supposed to do. Uh, you get a lot of different definitions. Uh, and I understand that. And probably most of them are correct. But in the bottom line, in the final analysis, the bottom line without a doubt in the Bible for New Testament Christianity is about one concept. That's restoration. Fixing things that are broke. And, uh, you know, um, we restore man to God and God to man. The Bible talks about that an unsaved man is, is enmity to God. He's alienated from God. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, was the propitiation for our sin. That means he was the go-between that reconciled two opposing parties. And the church's job is, with, if you're unsaved here this morning, our goal for you is to find Christ as your own personal Savior. And in that process, you get reconciled to God and God gets reconciled to you. Many times in dealing with people, you have to get people to get reconciled to themselves. They'll blame themselves for something that they shouldn't be blaming them for. They'll put themselves on some guilt trip that they really shouldn't be on or they'll allow somebody else to put them on one. And so when you get into the Bible and the Word of God, you get the real picture of what's going on and, and they, uh, you know, they get reconciled to themselves, who they really are in Christ. And then, of course, in carbon-14 units, we all have issues. Uh, somebody said one time, wherever you have friction, thing, wherever you have movement, you have friction. That's so true. And uh, we talked last week about us being a family, and we all know that in any family, issues come up from time to time. So the principles of the Word of God uh, not only restore God to man and man to himself, but they'll restore man to man. They'll fix things in our lives. Using the Bible to fix what can and will go wrong uh, within the family of God and dealing with people in their people's lives. And, you know, but truth has to be the foundation, without a doubt. Truth for anything that you're going to do in your relationship with God, our relationship with each other, my ability to preach to you, everything has to be on the foundation of the relationship of truth. It has to be built and established on that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, that great chapter on, uh, on ministry, 
He says, but having renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, the job of this church, my job in particular, whenever I open up the Bible to you, whether it's one-on-one or we're in uh, church this morning or Bible study, my job is one-fold in its final analysis, and that is the manifestation of truth, giving you the truth of what the Word of God says. And today, I want to look at a couple of more verses and, and learn what we can from these and go along with what we've talked about. And uh, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 25, verses 25 and 26. Now, here's what it says. It says, as cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. A righteous man falleth down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. Now, here again, uh, you're going to find some really good uh, principles within these verses that we can study. And, uh, you know, they're going to help you uh, not only learn more about how you're going to work with people, but I'm going to tell you, last week we did it. We're going to do it again this week just by where we're at. You're going to get some major pieces of your Bible today. You're going to get some things that you can put into your Bible that I think are really going to help you, not only with just working with people or understanding yourself, but in the course of uh, of putting your Bible together. Now, let me say this so I can get it out of the way. Doctrinally, these verses will all be the tribulation period. We know that. We know that from our past studies. The Jew in the tribulation and somebody helping them giving them a cold drink of water. In fact, you'll find it in great detail in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, how the Lord rewards when he comes back the people that actually did this. Inspirationally, uh, we'll see some principles to help us uh, and and as we work with others and, and, and help ourselves. And you never want to forget, as we move into this today, you never want to forget that the ministry is people. It's not about ministering to inanimate objects. It's about taking carbon-based 14 units and helping them through their problems with the absolute truth of the Word of God. Let's go to prayer this morning. Logan, would you stand up and ask God's blessing? In fact, you can sing the prayer if you want. That would be wonderful if you want to do that. Our Father. You know, that one. No, just go ahead. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Now, verse 25 says, As cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Now, this verse is an absolute goldmine. Both of these are, really. And uh, and we know that in the Bible, the life of an unsaved man or a woman, their journey through life is like Israel walking through the wilderness of sin for 40 years. It's called the wilderness of sin. And that title is a great picture of our life and your life after if we're never been saved and going through it. It's a picture of after you get saved that there's nothing of any value in that old life. As they came through the wilderness of sin, keep in mind now, they're God's children. They came out of Exodus in Exodus chapter 12, but a blood of a lamb, just like the day you got saved. 
Now they start on a journey to go to the promised land. Most commentators will tell you or write in their commentaries that the promised land is a picture of you going to heaven. That's not true. The promised land for them was not a picture of them going to heaven anymore than it is for you. The promised land was what the name says it was. It was the promised land. It was the land that God promised them that as long as they stayed in the Word of God and did what the Word of God said and, yes, kept the promises that uh, when they got there, it would be, everything would be a life of ease. God would care, care for them, protect them from their enemies and take care of it. And it's a picture of your spiritual maturity. When you get through the wilderness of sin, after you get saved and you follow like the nation of Israel was supposed to do, you'll get to the place in your life where you live by the promises of God. Then it doesn't matter what happened. You know, we talked about last couple of weeks, we talked about Daniel, we talked about Ezekiel. <clears throat> and I told you how that Daniel goes into the first captivity and, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, Ezekiel goes into the second captivity. And we talked about what great men of God they were. Daniel's a type of the Holy Spirit of God. Ezekiel's one of the great prophets of God. And we get talking about that, but sometimes we fail to miss the point that even though they were great men of God, here it comes, they both went into the captivity. In other words, them being right with God and doing what was right did not spare them the judgment that God brought upon their nation. And just because you and I love the Bible and you and I love the Word of God and you want to do what's right with your life doesn't mean that when this country falls apart and things begin to go south that we're not going to be in the middle of it. But the great promise is and the principles are that even though they had to go down into captivity, God protected them every step of the way. Why? Because they were living by the promises. So the promised land is a picture for you and me, no matter what happens in this country, what happens in this world, what befalls you in life. If you stay with the book and the principles and the promises, you're going to be okay. And that's one of the great, great concepts that you find. In the wilderness of sin, there was no food. There was no water. It was very hot during the day, probably 110, 120 degrees. It was very cold at night, probably 20 degrees. It was as hostile to the nation of Israel as the world will be to you. And I want you to understand that, you know, in the Bible, water that you find, and you know this, I, I know you do, water will be a picture of, of the Word of God. One of the greatest examples of that is found in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, you have the great story of the woman at the well. And how that she comes to the well and Jesus is waiting there for her and he meets her. And she'd be coming to that well all her life to draw water, probably several times a day. She'd bring her pitcher, she'd lay down the rope, bring up the bucket of water, fill it up, go back home, and probably do that every day of her life, if not several times a day in her life, as long as she could, the time she was very young. And the Bible says in that story that God uses that as an illustration. He wants to contrast the water that she's getting up against the eternal water that he wants to give her. And it's an incredible picture. Yesterday in Bible Institute, I, I used this as an example to show uh, you how that uh, typology in the Bible will always reinforce the great doctrines of the Bible. And this story here in John chapter 4, most people read it. They really don't get much out of it, I'm afraid. But they never make the connection back to Genesis chapter 29. In Genesis chapter 29, you have the original story of Jacob's well. <clears throat> and you'll find back there when you put the two together, it's an incredible picture. 
Back in Genesis chapter 29, this well that Jacob had back there, they had three groups of sheep that were around that well. And on that well was a great stone. And when they removed that stone, the sheep got the drink. And here we are some, what? That's probably some almost 15, 16, 1700 years later. We have the same exact well. This woman comes to the same exact well. In fact, she says, our fathers have got water here for, for, forever. She comes to the same exact, exact well. And here's the typology. Back in Genesis 29, there was a great stone on that well. In John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus Christ, the stone made without hands, was sitting on the same well. And when they removed that stone, back in Genesis 29, the three groups of sheep, got to get watered. Three groups of sheep, Ham, Japheth, and Shem, got the water when the stone was removed. And it's a picture that when Christ died on the cross, water came to you and me to have the everlasting life. Amen. And it's an incredible picture as you come down through it. And Jesus says to her in, in John chapter 6, verse 14, but whosoever drinketh of, the, of, of this water, Jacob's well, shall thirst again. But whoso drinketh the water that I give them shall never thirst, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. What a great picture that is. But there is the type in the Old Testament in, in Genesis 29 that, uh, uh, that uh, sustains the, the principle. And the great thing, greatest thing about that story, that woman had been coming to that well all her life because the water she got kept requiring her to come back because it couldn't fulfill the thirst that she had. When she met the rock and out of the rock came the water of life and she got that drink, the Bible says that when she went away, she left her pitcher. She was now complete and filled. She didn't need the water of this world anymore. She had now the water of everlasting life. What a great picture that is. You know, water is an incredible thing in itself. It has no taste to it. Hopefully has no color to it. And it has no nutritional value. Uh, but it's the basis for life. I mean, it's the basis for life. They send a, NASA sends a rocket up to and goes to Mars. Uh, the first thing they look for is water. On every planet out there, Io, one of the, uh, the largest planet of Jupiter, they think that it can sustain life. You know why? Because they think it's got water on it. Water is the basis for life, and if you want to find life in outer space, you're going to find some place that has water. And it's, a, it's an incredible concept. Water is an incredible thing. We can't live without it, like, like the Word of God. Men need water uh, even more than they need food in a survival situation. I remember the survival classes we took. They said you could live three or four weeks without food, but you can only go about a week without water. Water is essential. Water will be the only thing that will absolutely quench your thirst. You can get Gatorade. You can get a, you can get a Diet Coke. You can get it, whatever you want. It won't quench your thirst like the number one thirst quencher will, water. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can try everything out there the world has to try to quench your spiritual thirst. Amen. You'll never get it quenched until you get the real water. Amen. It's simple. That's how it works. Incredible picture. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's an incredible thing to look at and understand. You're going to find that some water that people think is real water 
and they move toward it, the water just keeps going and farther and farther, and finally they realize that what they thought was water was a mirage. It wasn't real water after all. You know there's people in churches just like that? They go through their whole life thinking this is water. It just stays out of their grasp, and one of these days at the great wine throw judgment, they're going to find out that that was a mirage. You're going to find that some water that people will, uh, you know, that uh, will be polluted. And it's, uh, it's poison. Well, that'll be your NIV, your ASV, and all the other translations. You know, the purest water is naturally filtered by rocks, coming through rocks. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 32 that that rock was Christ. And what you have here is a picture of us. And what we need to survive on our journey through the wilderness of sin. Now, when you're going to work with somebody through discipleship or maybe in the counseling level of things, when you get into that area of it and you start to work with it and deal with it, I'm going to tell you right now, what you're going to try to do for them is you're going to try to get them to quit drinking out of the polluted fountains of this life. You start drinking out of the crystal clear water of the Word of God. Now, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, now we're going to get a little deeper here, and this is where you're going to get some of your Bible. In the Old Testament, there are two great examples of this, the water of life. That supernatural thirst quencher that for all of us in life. And, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're talked about the fact that he says that the things in the Old Testament, like we're going about to look at here, the things in the Old Testament were for our examples and for our examples and for our admonition. In other words, he tells us to look back at the things that actually happened. There's going to be a spiritual application in the typology, and then you apply that to the New Testament doctrine, the New Testament principles. That's how you learn the Bible. So I want to show you two great examples of this. And first off, I want you to come to Exodus chapter 17. And I want you to look at verse 1. And this is a great story unto itself. Seventeen one. we'll read the first three verses here. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin, there it is, after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim. Now, here's the problem. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore, the people did chide. That means they got upset. Gave Moses a tough time. Old English word. Wherefore, they did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured great against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Now that's the problem. And here when, in this place in 17.1, the people are out in the wilderness of sin. There's nothing in that wilderness that sustains them. There's no food. Certainly there's no water. Now they're out in the middle of this thing. God brought them out of Egypt and they're out here in a world that has absolutely nothing for them anymore. I want you to see that. And in what follows, Moses goes to, he goes to God and what follows is an incredible picture of how you and I got saved by the word of God. And you cannot get saved without the, the water of life, the Bible. The Bible says in Romans ten seventeen that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Now, in verse 5 and 6, Mo, God comes to Mo, uh, Moses comes to God, and God tells Moses that here's what I want you to do, Moses. You take the, the staff in your hand, the rod of judgment. You know which rod I'm talking about. It's the one that you used down in Egypt to, to smite the waters and turn them to blood. It's the rod of judgment. And he says, you take that rod, and he says, you go over to Mount Horeb, and I'm going to show you there a big rock. And what I want you to do is stand on top of that rock and take the rod of judgment, and I want you to whack that rock with your staff. So Moses says, okay, Lord, uh, doesn't sound like much to me, but if that's what you want me to do. You know, sometimes God will ask you to do something that the average person will think is ridiculous. I mean, if this wouldn't have worked, you know how stupid he'd have looked standing on top of a rock beating the fire out of it? I mean, if I was Moses and it didn't work, I would if somebody said, what are you doing? And I'm saying, well, a lot of the people are mad at me and giving me problems. I can't hit them. I got their name on this rock and I'm just beating the fire out of this poor rock. I mean, sometimes God will ask you to do something that the rest of the world think is stupid. Don't you know that Noah had a time of it? He lived in a world where it never rained. There was no oceans. He lived inland someplace, and he's building an aircraft carrier the size of the USS Nimitz in his backyard. Sometimes God will ask you to do something that is, as the world sees it, doesn't make any sense. And, 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 and unfortunately, many times we as God's people don't do it because we don't think it makes any sense. Amen. But in this case, somebody needed water. And Moses, a servant of God, I mean, he talked with God face to face like a man speaking to his friend. He goes on there at that rock. He takes his rod of judgment and he quaps that rock. And guess what? The water comes out of that rock. God says, I'm going to stand before you, Moses, and you take that rod and you smite that rock. And when he did, the water came out and the people got the drink. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible or how depth in you into it, but I'm going to tell you right now, that's a picture of how you and I got saved. That rock's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 3, Deuteronomy chapter 32. And it's a picture of the crucifixion of Christ, the rock of God, when God used his rod of judgment to smite his son. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely, talking about the crucifixion of Christ and God's judgment on his own son, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. You know what God did? The day God's son hung on the cross, you know what he did? He whacked him with his rod of judgment so you and I could have the water of life. Amen. Don't you know when that Roman soldier took that spear and put it aside, the Bible says water and blood came out? I want to tell you something. When God stood upon that cross and he, he whacked his son for you and for me, the picture of that is the rock of God in the Old Testament. God's people needed water. He says, stand on that rock and smite it with the rod of judgment and the water came out. And there was a day in time when God stood on the cross of Calvary and smote his son. And you and I got the water because of it. Amen. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he hath put him to grief. It says in Isaiah 53 verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace. I love that part of the verse. You have the peace of God this morning, or you should have. The peace that passes all understanding. You got it. 
You live in it. That's your promised land. But you know how you got that peace? I'll tell you how it got it. You got it by God putting his chastisement on his son and smiting him that you could have it. Incredible. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, and when Moses smote the rock, and when God smote, the, uh, smote his son, the water comes out of that rock, and the living water, the cool water, to my thirsty soul, the word of God. And we sing about the great song, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. You know what he did? God sent his son, put him on a cross, the rock of God, the rock of ages, and then took the rod of judgment and put God's chastisement of our peace on him. And the water came out. The day God smote the rock of ages and the water came out, my supernatural water that saved me and saved you out of the wilderness of sin. Because there's a time in all of our lives when, when we tried everything in the world and we were still unhappy. We were still unfulfilled. The world just gave us a, a, a worse time than anything else. And we just got into more problems and the more trouble that compounded themselves in one bad situation, one bad decision, one bad relationship. And we were, we, we were like a man walking through the desert that, that had a thirst that could not be quenched. And we tried everything to try to quench that thirst. And then God showed us the living water that came out of the rock. The day God smote the rock of ages and the water came out. And now I'll never thirst again, spiritually speaking. Now our next example, and I want you to see these in comparison and contrast. Our next example is found in, uh, in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And as I said earlier, we talked about this in Bible Institute yesterday, how that the typology will always reinforce. The type won't teach the doctrine, but the typology will reinforce the doctrine. That's why I, one of the secrets I told them that you can always spot a false religion, whether it's Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists or wherever it's at, charismatic or whatever they may be. You can always spot a false teaching because they may have the verses that they use, but they can never go to the scriptures to find the types that will justify the verses. That's the biggest key you'll ever find in your life about teaching the Bible correctly. Does it all line up with everything that God has given us in the Old Testament that are for our examples and our examples? That's the key. Now, in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, here again we got a problem. It says, Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, under the desert of Zin, that's in the wilderness of sin. Uh, and in and, and the first month, and the people abode at Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Now, at first glance, again, the children of Israel find themselves in a situation with no water in the wilderness of sin. And we know that uh, the rock here, that what God's going to tell them to do, we know that that rock here has always been established already as a, as, a, as a type of Christ. And, you know, many people read those two events and they don't think much about them. Now, we talk a lot about here and have been, and I will continue to focus on it with where you're at, about the trained eye, being able to see something or two passages and see the difference between the two and through that trained eye know that what you're dealing with. So at first glance, these two look similar. 
But now let's put the trained eye to it and see the real difference. Now, first of all, in Exodus chapter 17, we saw where he uh, first deal with the rock. This is, this is Numbers chapter 20. This is some 20 years between the two events. It is not the same event. There's some at least 20 years according to Usher's chronology between the two events. That's not all. The second thing that your trained eye will show you that Aaron, the high priest is here. Aaron wasn't involved in the one back in Exodus chapter 17. The third thing that your trained eye will show you that the rod in question here is not the same rod that they had in Exodus chapter 17. The one in chapter 17 was the rod of judgment that Moses used. Here it's the rod in number 1710, uh, the priestly rod of Aaron. Not the same. Back in Exodus chapter 7, he's told to smite the rock. Here he's told to speak to the rock. Now, back in Exodus chapter 17, you have a picture of the crucifixion of Christ and the water that came out of our salvation coming out when God smote him. Now, here you have a picture of after you're saved, you have as a priest total access to God. Boldly going into the throne room before God and speak to him and make uh, make your request known. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. He says in Ephesians 2, 6, that you're, if you're saved this morning, you're already seated in heavenly places. You're supposed to, now this is a picture of you once you're saved, speaking to God and getting what you need for God after God smote his son on the cross. Now, again, Exodus chapter 17, you have a picture of the rock of our salvation, the water of life. In Exodus chapter 20, you have a picture of the rock of God that now will sustain us with the water of God. Two different aspects. Exodus chapter 17 is the salvation we got from the water. Numbers chapter 20 is the sustaining effect that once you get saved, that book will keep you through the wilderness of sin. In fact, the trained eye, if you're paying attention, uh, Exodus chapter 17, 1 says there's no water for the people. That's humanity in general. But ah, in Numbers chapter 20, it says there's no water for the congregation. See? There's a difference between the two. Training your eye to be able to see those differences makes all the difference in the world. A drink of cold water, supernaturally, to be a cold drink in a dry, dusty, hot, dirty world that can never satisfy us uh, and wilderness of sin. Not only, not only does the water save me in Exodus chapter 17, in Numbers chapter 20, it shows me that it sustains me. So where in chapter 17 of Exodus, he smote the rock, a picture of the crucifixion. Here in Numbers 20, he speaks to the rock. It's a picture of you and I in the congregation of God now having total access to God. Now, I need to stop here and make a point. Moses had a bad day. We all have bad days from time to time. He'd been up all morning and probably all night dealing with the people, which proves to me that there were Baptist churches back then in that day. <laughs> and he's struggling with that thing, and he's obviously upset. He's upset at the people. 
He's upset at the fact that uh, they're always giving him uh, flack. He's upset, most of all, I'm sure, that, that they just can't ever get how God got them through the last jam they were in, that he'll get them through this one. I'm sure that was hard heavy on him. So anyway, God says to Moses, okay, you get on this rock and you speak to it. And when you speak to it, the water's going to come out. That's a picture, Exodus 17, of the judgment of God, salvation through the crucifixion. You got the word of God. Now we're saved. We speak to the rock of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we get the sustaining power of the word of God. Moses failed to test. He takes the rod of Aaron, and in his anger, he whacks that rock instead of speaking to it. Now, if there's anything any place in the Bible that shows me how God, how important the, the types are in the Bible to, to me is how important they are to God. You know, Moses did not get to go into the promised land because of that event right there. And the promised land for Moses was one of the greatest things you ever saw in your life. You know, I, I, I often think of, I often think about uh, Moses and God. And, you know, if you ever really want to cultivate, uh, every Christian had to kind of cultivate that kind of relationship. In most churches and Christians, you have that holier-than-thou, uncommon, oh, God, bless us, make us ugly ducklings into swans, you know, stuff like that. Moses had a relationship with God that was a real relationship. They just talked like a man speaking to his brother face-to-face or friend face-to-face. Moses had his bad days. God had his bad days. And they complained to each other. There are times that Moses came in and said to God in the tent, God, I'm going to kill. You need to kill them all. Just wipe them out, kill every one of them. God would say, Moses, slow down a little bit. Now, you know, you know that they're just flesh. And he says, I know, but we had to eliminate the flesh. Just kill them, Lord. <laughs> and, uh, and then God would talk him through it. And Moses say, yeah, okay, I understand. Thank you. I appreciate it, Lord. About three weeks later, he came into the tent, and God was there. And God said, I'm going to wipe them out and kill every one of them. I'm going to hang them over the pit of hell and roast them like a, like a hot dog on a weenie stick. I'm just going to burn them to death. And Moses would say, come on now, Lord. You know better than that. Why, what are all these other nations going to say if you kill all the people once you've already shot your mouth off and told them how they were going to, salvation was going to come through them to the world? God say, yeah, you're right, Moses. Good bud. <laughs> That's the handshake God Moses had. <laughs> Find out in the Apocrypha. But anyway, <clears throat> that's the kind of relationship you need to have. Amen. Just a common, ordinary relationship that it is what it is. Amen. And that's what God wants. And, you know, he, he comes down here, and, and I, I've thought about that, you know. Uh, they're getting ready to go over to the promised land, and, and, and God comes down and says, Come on, Moses. And uh, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to go for a walk with me. And the Lord takes him up there on the mountain and there overlooking the promised land. And Moses is saying, man, that's great. Lord, I'll tell you what, we've been along 40 years, but we've been through some stuff together, haven't we? Well, I'll tell you what, I love you, Lord. This has been a great thing. And uh, I can't wait till tomorrow to lead him over there. Got real quiet. And the Lord said, Moses, you ain't going over. Moses says, What? I'm sorry, Moses, you ain't going. But why? He says, Moses, uh, you you just are not going to go over. Uh, Is it because of that rock thing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lord, it was a rock. 
So, you know, you said to smite it and speak to it. And I, 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 I got carried away and I, and I, and I, I hit it with that stick. And I, I'm, I'm sorry. And he said, Moses, you don't understand this right now. But that rock was a picture of something to come. And I told you way back 20 years ago that you were to smite the rock. And that was a picture of my son coming down and dying on the cross. The second time I told you to speak to it. And what you did is what every Catholic does every mass. You crucified him again. And I, I can't let you go in. You broke the type. Moses says, what's a type? He says, you know what? Come here, Moses. I can't let you go in, but I'll tell you what I'll do. So Kaim Tumman, I'm going to send you back in that land and you're going to be my key guy. Because my people got to go through some things and I'm going to need you. I'm going to need you and I'm going to need Elijah because Elijah represents the prophet and you represent the law. So you just got to trust me, Moses. You just got to trust me. It's okay. Come on, let's, let's walk up this mountain. And Moses said, you know what, Lord? It's okay. I, I, wanna, I got to see it. I appreciate that. And if you're going to let me come back in at some point, that's great. The truth of the matter is I'd rather just walk with you than go to any piece of land. So they walked up that mountain. Oh, I can just see them two of them, arm in arm, walking up that full moon, walking up that mountain trail. And the Bible says that when he got up there, God took Moses home and he buried him in a place that no man ever found him. That's the kind of relationship you need to have. That's what it's all about. But the great principle is this. The servant of God disobeyed God. The servant of God failed. And you know what? Sometimes you and I will fail. So you and I won't do everything right. But what I want you to know is even though Moses failed, God still brought the water. What the great principle is that you and I aren't going to always do it right. Thank God that in spite of us, God will still get the job done. That's an incredible principle. Incredible principle. Now the last part of verse 25 it says, show us good news from a far country. As, water, as cold water to a thirsty soul, show us good news from a far country. Now that far country, you know in the Gospels, you'll find it mentioned quite a bit. Matthew 21, 33, Matthew 25, 14, uh, Mark 13, 34, uh, Luke 19, 12, Luke 29, 20, verse 9. Uh, and the far country will always be heaven. Now, when it talks about a man taking a journey to a far country, it's always going to be a, relation, a, a reference to God coming down, dying on the cross, and then going back to heaven. So you're going to find it in these parables all the time. Now, the good news, the good news here will be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news. So what he's talking about here, he's saying that, that the, the gospel, the good news from heaven, is like a cold drink to our thirsty soul. That's what he's saying. Now, you know, you'll find in the Old Testament they had uh, the gospel uh, of the kingdom. That was the good news to the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, for you and me, we have the gospel of the grace of God. That's great news for you and me. Uh, and in the tribulation period, there's going to be the everlasting gospel. That's good news for the tribulation saints, Revelation 14, 6. And the picture is of us in the wilderness of sin and God coming down from a far country. The rock of God and God putting my sin on him, Isaiah 53, and him paying my price. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, the gospel is he died according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel defined for you. 
And 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3 is the defining chapter in the Bible on the gospel. The good news. The good news that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. That's the good news I got for you today. Now that's verse 25 and what a verse it is. Now you've got some major pieces of your Bible you can put in there if you don't have it already. But now we've got to look at verse 26. It goes right along verse 25. It says, A righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. Now in verse 25, we were just told that the water of life uh, is the word of God like a cold drink to our soul that is thirsty. We saw two aspects from it. We saw that in Exodus chapter 17, he smote the rock and that saved you from your sin. And then in uh, chapter 20 of Numbers, he was supposed to speak to the rock and that is a picture of you after you're saved and the sustaining power of the word of God in your life as you continue on through the wilderness of sin. There is nothing in this world that's going to sustain you. It has to come supernaturally if you're truly saved. I always worry about people that get along with the world and claim they're saved. I really do. Uh, It just doesn't work that way. Now, this verse is aimed at a child of God who, when he has issues in his life, uh, he doesn't get the sustaining uh, word of God in his life. And it happens all the time. We work with them all the time. You know, the carbon 14 units break down, need the repairman, that's us. Uh, And this verse is aimed at the child of God who, when he has issues, will not take it to God and his word, but rather he's going to take it to the world. Now, I want to make a statement here, and I, and I, I want to uh, clarify so everybody knows where I'm coming from. Uh, modern-day psychology, modern-day therapy, modern-day Christian psychology or Christian therapy or any other worldly system will never solve your spiritual issues. Amen. I had the privilege, and I've got it on tape someplace uh, years ago that a, a guy who was a Christian psychologist uh, and he was teaching classes at uh, one of the colleges here. Uh, he asked me if I would come in and have a debate with a, uh, a bona fide, unsafe, uh, whatever she was. And I, I said, well, absolutely, sure. So we went there, and there was about 100 kids in there. And uh, her and I were sitting up front. And uh, we, we got to introduce ourselves and tell a little bit about ourselves before we, we got it, and basically uh, it was the form of debate where you could ask a question, and then I would answer it, and then she would answer it like that. So whenever I get in a situation like that, I've always found the best thing to do is to put her on the, on the defense very quickly. And uh, I, I wanted her running after me. I didn't want to be running after her. So I wanted to clear my spot. So I got up. I don't remember exactly what I said. It's on a tape if we could ever find it. And I said... Uh, I said, uh, I appreciate being here today, but I said, uh, you know, we're going to talk about uh, problems that people have. I said, uh, I I want you to know before we go any farther that uh, I believe the Bible is the absolute infallible word of God. And I believe that every problem that man has can be solved with the Bible. Now, the moment I said that, I got about 15 amen. So now I'm on the plus side of things. So I know I got at least 15, probably more. Some of them didn't have the guts to do it, but I got about 12 or 15 that are on my side now. She ain't going to get any amens. So, and I said, unlike my uh, partner here in our debate, I said, uh, uh, I do not hold to anything that the world has in psychology. I believe the Bible is the absolute final authority in everything. 
I said, I have a friend of mine who is a Christian psychologist, and he told me one time that he thought that the Bible was truth. He was a doctor in psychology. He says, I believe the Bible is truth. I just don't believe the Bible is all truth. And I said, I want you to know that is not my position. I believe that the Bible is all truth, and there's absolutely no truth in psychology. And if there is any truth, it's because they stole it from the Word of God. And I said, and unlike the dear lady who we're going to talk back and forth with, I said, I don't buy anything she's saying. And I said, I just want to be clear. I'm not mad at her. She seems like a nice lady. If there was a McDonald's close, I'll get her a Big Mac after we're over. But the end of the day is this. I don't buy anything she's going to tell you. And I want you to know where I'm coming from. I'm coming from the Word of God. And that's what I said. Now, how do you follow that? And she got up and she said, well, I, I believe the Bible. I believe, just like she didn't have anything to say. And so then we went through it back and forth. And now the 15 people who said amen, I know they're going to give me the lead-in questions that I need. At the end, after I was all done, there was this lady, she's probably about, I don't know, 40. She looked out of place in the class because it was all like you guys. But she looked like she's about 40, 45 years old. And, uh, you know, and she, she, this was the last, everything, went, we went back and forth, and it was very good. I talked about the Bible and this, and the little lady, you know, she, she had lost her punch at this point. I pretty much got to dominate the deal. And at the and God always puts one of these people in the crowd like this. This woman was well-dressed. She's probably about 40, 45 years old. And at the end, right before I was done, going to make my closing statement, she raises her hand, and I say, yes, ma'am. She says, a, a Pastor, Aren't you what you're really trying to say is that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin, and if we don't get saved, we're going to die in hell in eternity? I said, yes, sister, that's exactly what I was trying to say. I mean, she set me up incredible. And I, and I told him, I said, look, I, I, don't, uh, I, I, I know that people have physical needs. I get that. They have physical deficiencies. I, I understand that. But today, every time somebody's got depression or anxiety or this or that, the first thing we try to do is put them on some kind of medication to fix them. There's no medication, whether it's Prozac, Annex, Xanax, up and down, uppers and downers, in between, marijuana cherry sticks with popsicles on them. There is nothing on this planet that you can take medical-wise that's going to solve your spiritual problem. It's just that simple. But that's where we go. I talked to a lady one time, and she says, I, I, I'm having all kinds of problems. I said, well, man, what's your problem? She says, well, I, I just don't feel my, like myself. And I said, well, how do you feel when you do feel like yourself? She didn't know. She went in, and, and, and the psychologist had give her all the trump lines that she needs to follow that gives her the idea, this is my problem. She had no idea. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and the book of Colossians is a picture of the latest in church we're at to now. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. And I've told you before, man's going to have two reasons that he has the issues he has in life. Either he's unsaved and he's trying to fulfill everything in his life by going to the world, which is never going to fulfill it because there's nothing in the wilderness of sin, or he's saved and he's out of fellowship with God and he's resisting God's plan for life. He's grieving the Holy Spirit of God, and he's trying to be happy with a grieving Holy Spirit of God in his life. It'd be like, 
you're walking around your house trying to watch a Super Bowl or a football game and be happy, and you got a wailing, whining mother-in-law who follows you everywhere you go, wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, lamenting, falling on the floor, slobbering, crying for help, and you're trying to go on with your normal life. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit of God's doing inside you if you're saved this morning and you're out of fellowship with God living in the wilderness of sin. Now, how are you happy in that? You're not. In our people ministry, you know, which, you know, meets this Saturday to put it together, we simply take the water of life and get people to start drinking it versus the corrupt, dirty fountains they've been drinking of. And I know that's an oversimplification of the issue, but that's exactly what it is. You know, troubled water will all, drinking troubled water will always lead to a troubled life. And there's a great example of this in the Old Testament, and I want to look at that in a moment here. And, uh, you know, when we work with people, we build our, our ministry with people uh, around 70 or 80 solid case study formats that uh, uh, really set up the pattern of human nature. Uh, they form the absolutes of dealing with the issues that people have. And, uh, you know, the doctrine reinforced with the, with the types and the principles in the Old Testament. And uh, uh, then we will, we will take these folks and take the models, the, the principles, and all that things. We'll address the issue directly because we're not interested in treating the symptoms that somebody has. We're interested in solving the problems. Too much goes on today with people's lives where people want to treat the symptoms of their problem, but they really don't want to solve the problem. I'm not a symptom treater. I want to get right to it and fix the problem. You go to your Christian psychologist for $80 an hour or $120 an hour, you will have problems right up to the point your insurance runs out. And then you're suddenly healed. And that's the way it works. Now, in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, I want you to turn there. I want to show you our third example based on verse 26. Now, this is a great story. In my list of case studies, this is number 39. I got them listed in the back of my Bible. And when I work with somebody, I just simply take the case study and apply it, cut it, trim it, and put it into work. And that's what we do. It says, Second Chronicles chapter 16, And behold, <clears throat> the acts of Asa, first and last, lo, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Asa, in the thirty and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet, until his disease was exceedingly great. Yet in his disease, he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers and died in one fourth year of his reign. Now, as I said, this is one of the great case studies that are in our operational procedure manual in dealing with people. And, what, and I, when I deal with somebody, as I said, I, I, just take, I just take the case study, listen to them, find out where they're at, hand pick something for them, design it for right where they're at in their life, and then help them get out of it with the principles and the truth that got it at. And I've said it many, many times. I've said it the last time I preached. You can't fix the problem with the same thinking that caused the problem. You've got to change some things. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, uh, the real issues that people have today, people are incredibly depressed today. People are caught up in addictions today. 
Uh, people come to the place where they're, uh, you know, they're, uh, they have anxiety. They have no self-worth. Uh, they, their kids have all kinds of problems. And, uh, you know, their life is upside down. They go through two or three bad marriages and uh, nothing seems to work for them. A couple of weeks ago on Thursday night, I showed you one back in Kings on how to break a stronghold. And that, that's another one. Uh, that's another one. Now, Asa, like many people that you're going to come up against, has some real issues here. Let's look at these issues. Look at verse 12. He's got a disease in his feet. Now, that's going, to be a, that's going to translate out on the imperational side that your feet is your ministry and your walk with God. So we got a problem here with something wrong with his walk, his disease in his feet. And the Bible says that it started out, but then it got exceedingly great. And that's why problems left to themselves don't get better, they get worse. If you don't, you don't get the cure of the Word of God in your life with your issues, you're not going to fix them yourself. And going to the world's physicians, you're going to see here in a moment, it didn't help Asa and it will not help you. And it's a thing where this is one of the most complete, perfect studies anywhere in the Bible that shows you why you and I have the problems that we have. And I want you just to follow very carefully here. It, it, it really unfolds itself. Now, instead of going to God with it and seeking help from uh, the Lord and the Word of God and God's prophets, he goes to uh, the worldly physician. He calls Dr. Phil. He calls somebody who is going to psychoanalyze where he's at. He gets somebody that follows the William Gasser, Glasser theory of, of man's problems. He goes to a counseling center, talks to a therapist, Christian or non-Christian, uh, who is trained in the philosophical issues of, of the great European thinkers as philosophy developed over in the, in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 1500s. And he doesn't get better, he just gets worse, and in time he dies. Now, his death is an interesting thing. Now, I know he died physically, but we're talking about in a spiritual application here. There's many examples in the Bible of somebody just like Asa who gets way out, and Samson comes to mind. He gets way out of line and gets so far down he can't get back. And he commits suicide. And you're going to find that there are people, God's people, who get to that point in their life where um, they, they think there's no other way out. And of course, uh, uh, I think suicide is a terrible thing. Uh, I, I think it's something that uh, um, is a, uh, it, it brings tragedy to a lot of people. I will tell you this, that there are seven suicides in the Bible. When you study all seven of them, you will find out everything you want to know about suicide from God's standpoint. And uh, unfortunately, suicide is a bad choice, but usually suicide is the last bad choice in a life of a lot of bad choices. And every bad choice puts you a little bit farther down. And of course, suicide doesn't, doesn't fix anything in a person's life. And uh, you'll find that there are people that will use suicide as a, as a guilt trip. How many times I've talked to a parent that your kid wanted to do what they wanted to do and you were trying to discipline and then the kid says, I think I'll kill myself. Now that puts panic into a parent and the kid's using that. Now the answer to that is don't do it on the carpet. That seems harsh, doesn't it? Yes. 
Well, and then it only seems harsh because you'll allow your child to manipulate you all your life. Somebody has to be the adult here. If you want to you really call him, say, yeah, I've been thinking about it too. Let's go do it together. Come on. Put him in the car, drive down the road, and say, you pick out which brudge abutment we're going to hit, and I'll go for it. I guarantee you he won't pick one out. He'll probably pick Dairy Queen. Get some chicken McNuggets. Suicide's a terrible thing. And I would never, uh, but I know how people use it. People will use suicide so they can get your sympathy. And uh, uh, you say, how do you, well, you know, I know this is not generally true, but it's true in a, in a major way. Most people who commit suicide leave a note afterward. They don't call you up and tell you they're going to do it. Now, there are exceptions to that, but in my 50 years, almost 50 years of seeing it, I'm telling you, the majority of them don't tell anybody what they're going to do. Now, there are some signs you can see if you're paying attention. But most of them don't, don't talk about it. Uh, the ones that do talk about it are the ones that aren't really serious doing it in most cases. But suicide is a terrible thing. And I, I, you know, I've dealt with it over the years. I've had to preach funerals of people that committed suicide. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. To this day, I, I, uh, if somebody claims to be a child of God and commits suicide, there has to be some deep-rooted spiritual issues to bring them to that point. Because I don't see any reason on any planet in any universe for a child of God to take his own life. I will tell you this. Suicide is, is one of the most selfish acts that a person can perform. Because they're not thinking about anybody but themselves. They don't think about their wife or their husband, their kids, their friends, anything. All their folk. And this is what got them into problem. I'm going to show you here in a minute. This is what get them into problem. It was all about them, what they wanted. And their life is usually strewn with potholes of lies, deceptions, and, and it just gets to the point that it spirals down to the point now where they think that that's the only way out. Now, I got to say this, though. Most of God's people that get into messes are not going to commit suicide. That's reserved for a very select few. Uh, most of God's people that... that uh, uh, that I've dealt with, the, I mean, in, I think in almost 50 years of ministry, five, maybe six people committed suicide. One of them was a suicide murder. But, I, but very few people, compared to all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that I've worked with and dealt with with all their issues, that's a very small number. And it may be a little bit more than that. I can't remember this fast, everything. But I'm telling you this. Most of God's people, when they get disease in their feet and they have these problems, they won't commit suicide. But I'll tell you something that all of them will do. They're all self-destruct. And you can self-destruct and go into a self-destruction mode without killing yourself. All of God's people out of fellowship will, will go into a self-destruct mode. You'll lose everything in your life. You'll lose your happiness. You'll live your peace. You'll lose your blessings, your millennial reward, your inheritance, the judgment seat of Christ. Unless you get drinking out of the right water hole. Now, I just, <laughs> I don't plan these. Now, here's a story about Asa, who has a disease in his feet. And his disease in his feet is a picture of his walk with God. And he don't go to God in the Word of God. He goes to the physicians. It gets exceedingly great. He refuses to take it to God, just like a lot of God's people, and he winds up dying. And lo and behold, 
Lo and behold, we find this story about a man that will not go to the Word of God and go to God's man and God's people to get it fixed, but goes to the world. We happen to find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 11. Now, isn't that a quinky-dinky? There's only one book on this planet that's going to get you out of the mess you're in and only one fountain you need to be drinking at. Now, the Bible talks about a lot about guys like this, that the physicians that he went to. Second Peter chapter 2 says that they are wells without water. Nothing to drink there. It says they have great swelling, speak great swelling words, but at the end of the day, they are wells without water. It says, it says, while they promise themselves liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is uh, brought in bondage. He's saying the same guy who's trying to tell you how to get out of it is already in bondage with the same thing you're in bondage with. Now, I teach you in your own life and in, in dealing with people, I, I, I teach you that, you know, the three aspects. We talked about this last week, I think it was, about looking behind, look around, and look ahead. If you want to fix something in your life, if you've got an issue in your life you want to fix, you have to first understand and see how you got there. Trying to fix something that you don't understand how you got into it in the first place will never work. You have to see the cause and the effect that you got into that mess because otherwise you're going to repeat it again. And there's some things in your world and your life in doing that you're going to have to get honest with. There may be some things that have to go. There may be some people that have to go. When you stand there and look back at where you got where you're at and you see everybody involved and everything involved, if you keep those things in your life, you're never going to get out of where you're at. So it's absolutely vital that you look behind. And when you look behind, you see exactly how you got where you are. And things got to go. You know why you still have your addiction, you still have your problem, you still have your stronghold in your life? Because you never looked back and saw where you came from or what got you here. And even if you did, you're still doing it today. And you struggle with it all the time. And it isn't going to change. You may never commit suicide, but you're well on the path to self-destruction. You're going to lose your marriage. You're going to lose everything God had for you. You got to look back and then you got to look around. You got to see not only where you came from and how you got in this mess, but now you got to get real with where you're at. You have to get honest where you're at. You have to quit rationalizing and justifying your present situation. You have to come to terms with it, come to grips with it, and you have to say, here is my problem. I see it and I understand it. You got to look behind, you got to look around, <coughs> then you got to look ahead. You ask yourself, okay based on where I've been and where I'm at, now I'm honest, how do I get out of this mess? Then you put a plan together to do that. Now, here it comes. We saw Asa, king of Judah. And he gets a disease in his feet. And that disease in his feet gets exceedingly great. 
He's the king of Judah. He knows who God is. He knows who the prophet is. He knows what the Bible says, what he has. He knows everything he needed to do, but he does not do it. Instead, he goes to the worldly physicians to try to fix his problem, and he dies. Let's take just a minute and look behind. Okay, I know he had a disease in his feet. I know it got great. I know he made a bad choice. Let's don't stop there. Let's go back and see where it started long before his toenails fell off. Let's go back and it's, let's look behind for a minute. Let's go back and look behind and see what really, where it all started. Chapter 16. Second Chronicles chapter 16, pick it up in verse 1. Here it comes. Oh, boy, here it comes. In the sixth and thirteenth year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah. You remember now they're split, so they're warring back and forth with each other. They're in the middle of a civil war. They split under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and all the Boam boys, and it's a mess now. Came up against Judah and built uh, and built Ramah to the intent that he might uh, let none of uh, out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Ah, oh, here it comes. Look behind. Then Asa brought out the silver and the gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent to Ben Adon, king of Syria, and dwelt in Damascus, saying, There is a league between me and thee, uh, as there was between thy father and, and thy father. Behold, I have sent thee silver and gold. Go, break thy league with Basha, king of Israel, that it may depart from me. You know where it started? He took the holy things that God had given him and he gave them to the world. Just like I taught you, what, three, four weeks ago? Can I cook or can I cook? I'm telling you. <laughs> you see, we look at the disease in his feet. We say, oh, that was a terrible thing. I tell you it's because of his, it's a picture of his walk with God. But we've got to look behind. Where did it start? It started way back when, when he took the holy things out of God and made a league with the world. You know what your problem is this morning, why you can't get out of what you're in? You made a league with the world. You made a league with the world. And if you're saved here this morning, you got the problems you got, look behind. You got the problems you got simply because God put everything in your life, the holy things, the blessings, the precious salvation, the precious Holy Spirit of God, all of those things that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, and you took those things and you gave them to the world. And what was their end result? His walk with God was damaged to the point that he could have fixed it. But by this time, now it makes sense why he didn't go to, the, to, the, to, to God with it, why he went to the physicians. Now we got the missing part of the puzzle. I often wondered why would the king of uh, Judah uh, that is the king and, and over God's man, and why would he, not ref, why would he refuse to go to God and, then, and, and go to the physician? Now I know because he was in league with the world system. And once you get in league with the world system, you always go back to it. Unless you look around, look behind, look around, and look ahead. And break that thing in your life and move on from here. It's just that simple. (coughs) 
Now, the real issue, you got to see this, too. I'm not done yet, almost done. We're way ahead. I can go another hour. Uh, you got to see this. The real issue just was in Asia. It'll never be that. Now, he's responsible for his own actions, and he's responsible for, for taking the holy things and giving them to the world. I get that. But I want you to see another level of this. The real issue is not just Asa, but along with Asa's issue was the church he was going to. His abundant life has been turned into abundant strife. Now, here's the problem that led to the disease in his feet with his walk with God. And this is the same problem today in our walk with God churches and preachers that are in league with the world. Second Chronicles chapter 15, just one chapter back, verse 3. Here's Israel's issue that wound up destroying Asa because he followed this advice. This is a picture of every church today that steps outside the Word of God brings in the world system, makes a league with it through music, through philosophy, through whatever they do. There's Baptist churches in this town that use discipleship and you on your second or third lesson, they give you a psychological evaluation. Find out what you really need. I don't need to give anybody in this room a psychological evaluation. I know what your old nature is and I know we got to stay on top of it or we'll do everything that everybody else does in the world. It's just that simple. But here's the problem. Here's Israel's problem. Here's our problem. 2 Corinthians 15, 3. Now, for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. He's going to the wrong church. It got him killed. It got him in league with the world that he thought that modern-day Christianity and the psychology and all the stuff with it was better than just that old black back 66 that God gave you. And now he finds himself in a situation where by his teaching from his own religious leaders, he now has no true God. He has no one teaching truth. And he has no Bible, no law. You know what he's got? He's got a form of godliness, but it denies the power thereof. And it wasn't working for him. And it won't work for anybody. Because unless you get back to the book and you get into that book and you let the principles guide your life and you make those the absolute standard by what you live your life on, you're going to be just like him. And the fountain and the spring that he was drinking from is troubled and it's corrupt and it's polluted. And I'll say it again, a corrupt, polluted fountain will correct a corrupt, polluted life. And after salvation, nothing, absolutely nothing in this world will sustain you just like it wouldn't for Asa. And you know what? Because he wouldn't adhere to what he knew the Bible said, because he listened to his pastors, he listened to his prophets, he had no teaching priest, they had long lost the true concept of God, even though they talked about God and everything. They were still doing the sacrifices. 
They were doing everything that churches are doing today. Israel was in that day on both sides of it, Old Testament, New Testament. And in spite of that, they had lost the true God. They had lost the truth. And they lost their Bible. Now yet, you walk into that temple, you'd think that God was there. You see, after salvation, there's nothing, absolutely nothing will sustain you through the wilderness journey. And uh, it's just like it wouldn't work for Asa. And so he self-destructed. And God's people today are on a course, most of them, many of them, a self-destruct course. And they're not going to fix it. They're not going to change it because you've made a league with the world system. And you're going to die spiritually. Maybe you'll never commit suicide. I hope not. But you're going to die spiritually. Proverbs 25, chapter uh, 25, verses, verses 25 and 26 are two verses that are gold mines on the issues that God peoples has. They show and lead a guide with truth and show us that the real issues with God's people today and God's people need to get back to the book. Letting the Bible establish you in life through its principles of truth. Realizing that in a wilderness of sin, there's nothing. And when he smote that rock the first time, the water came out, and that's why we got saved. Some 20 years later, there again without water in a wilderness of sin, a picture of our journey, and in that wilderness journey, they have no water again. And what happens? This time he says, speak to the rock. And that rock is a picture of Christ on the throne and you and me having perfect access to God. Water to save you, water to sustain you. Somebody says, well, how can you trust that King James Bible? How can you trust any Bible? You know, human man put it out and he can make mistakes. The same way Moses made the mistake and the water still got here. God uses imperfect people to bring forth his perfect word. Letting the Bible establish you in life through its principles of life. And the Proverbs talks about the issues of life. And that's what we're looking at. You getting to the place in your life, for your own life first, that you see and understand all these things as it applies to you. And then as you try to help somebody else, you realize you can't go through life with people trying to solve their uh, fix their symptoms without solving their problems. But it takes those three things. They have to get honest to where they've come from. They have to get brutally honest where they're at. And then they have to get really honest where they want to go. If those three things are not working in a person's life, they're not going anywhere. You will waste your time. They'll waste their time. And God will waste his time. Because God's only interested in truth. He's interested in you accepting the truth and then doing something with the truth. Well, we'll hold up there.